welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is March 18th, 2020, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Difficult to Breathe. It could be pneumonia. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Bond. He's an emergency medicine physician and assistant professor at the University of Calgary. He is also an avid foam supporter and producer through various online outlets, including the SGEM. Welcome back to the SGEM, Chris. Thanks, Ken. Now, are you in quarantine right now with this COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, I got a little bit of a cold as I came back from Houston March 9th. And so I got my first swab and self-isolation experience this week. But good news, about 10 minutes ago before this phone call, I got called and told it was negative. So now I just have to go through the arduous process of waiting to actually be allowed to go back to work. But at least that allowed me to do a lot of admin work from a site and disaster planning perspective in Calgary. It's been super busy, but uh, pretty fun. Yeah, we're going to need all hands on deck for this. So I hope you stay healthy and I hope we can get you back to the front line soon. But this is not an episode about COVID-19. But here are just five basic things that you can do to flatten the curve. Number one, hey, wash your hands and do it often, at least 20 seconds with soap and water. And try not to touch your face. I know that's hard. Physically isolate yourself. I'm saying physically instead of socially because you can still say socially connected. And I think that's important during these high anxiety times. So you can reach out through social media. You can always FaceTime people. But physically isolate yourself. Stay home if you can. And then cough into your elbow or a tissue and then throw it out. The tissue, that is, not your elbow. And then go back to number one and wash your hands. And the fifth thing is disinfect objects or surfaces with regular household cleaning wipes or sprays. There you go. Five basic things that you can do to help during this COVID-19 pandemic. So many lists of five, Ken. Always five. It's always five. It's always five. I've got five more. If you're unsure of what to do or for more information, here are five websites you can go to the CDC website, the Health Canada website, Public Health Ontario, the WHO, World Health Organization website, or the FDA, Food and Drug Administration website. Okay, Chris, this is an SGEM hot off the press. Give us a case. This one's H-O-T-T hot. So a 47-year-old healthy non-smoker presents to the emergency department with a productive cough, fever, and says it has been difficult to breathe for the past four days. He appears well with a temperature of 38.7 Celsius, heart rate of 90, respirate of 20 breaths per minute, and room air oxygen saturation of 91%. On auscultation, you hear some fine crackles at the bases. You wonder if there's value in ordering any blood work, particularly a biomarker such as C-reactive protein, the CRP, procalcitonin, or a complete blood count for white blood cell count, in addition to doing a chest X-ray. Chris, community-acquired pneumonias are a significant source of morbidity and mortality in adults. And we've covered this issue a couple of times on the SGEM. One episode looked at beta-lactam monotherapy versus beta-lactam plus a macrolide or combination therapy in adult patients admitted to the hospital with moderate to severe community-acquired pneumonia. That was SGEM 120. This study supported the combination therapy in these patients. And more recently, the question of whether steroids improve morbidity and mortality in patients admitted to hospital with community-acquired pneumonia. That was SGM-216. 
The bottom line was that corticosteroids appear to improve mortality and or morbidity in patients admitted to the hospital with CAP. There is evidence that an accurate diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia may lead to earlier treatment while avoiding unnecessary antibiotics for patients who do not have community-acquired pneumonia. Previous research has demonstrated that individual signs and symptoms have limited accuracy in the diagnosis of CAP. The diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia is usually based on an abnormal chest x-ray in a patient with signs and symptoms of a lower respiratory tract infection. White blood cell count, C-reactive protein, and procalcitonin are all biomarkers associated with an increased likelihood of community-acquired pneumonia. There are also clinical prediction rules that include CRP for the diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia. Procalcitonin is another potential biomarker that may or may not help in the diagnosis of bacterial pneumonia. Guidelines such as the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Oh, I really like these guidelines. They're very, um, hmm, what's the word I'm looking for? Nice. They recommend using CRP at the point of care to reduce inappropriate antibiotics when diagnosing community-acquired pneumonia. These various biomarkers are readily available in the emergency department setting in the U.S., as well as primary care settings in other countries in Europe. The study we are reviewing on this SGM episode performs an updated systematic review and meta-analysis of the diagnostic accuracy of biomarkers for community-acquired pneumonia. Okay, Chris, give us the clinical question. What is the accuracy of biomarkers for the diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia? And the reference? Abel et al., Accuracy of Biomarkers for the Diagnosis of Adult Community-Acquired Pneumonia, a meta-analysis, Academic Emergency Medicine, March 2020. Let's run through the PICO. What was the population? Adult patients presenting with symptoms of acute respiratory infection and patients with clinically suspected pneumonia based on physician order of a chest radiograph who reported sufficient information to calculate sensitivity and specificity for the diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia for at least one biomarker. And there were a number of exclusions. I'll list those in the show notes. What was the intervention? C-reactive protein, procalcitonin, or white blood cell count. And what did they compare it to? Chest imaging with chest x-ray or CT scan. And what was their outcome? The diagnostic accuracy of biomarkers for pneumonia. Well, Chris, I mentioned earlier, this is an SGEM hot off the press episode, which means we have the lead author on the show. And I really like the way you introduced Dr. Abel, because the first time I ever met Dr. Abel, I called him Dr. Ebel. I think he heard Dr. Evil, but it was Dr. Ebel because it's spelled E-B-E-L-L. But I think it has German heritage. Is that correct, Dr. Abel? That's right. It's Professor Dr. Abel to you, but uh, you can call me Abel. (laughs) Great to be here, Ken. Mark is a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia in Athens. He is also the co-founder of POEMS, editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence and deputy editor of American Family Physician. Welcome to the SGM, Mark. Great to be here. I did have the pleasure of working with you on Primary Care Medical Abstracts, or PCMA, for a few years. Yeah, that was great fun, and I missed that. It was great fun working with you and Steve and the rest of the team. I, I always came away from that learning something, and I learned mainly that what there's it depends is your favorite uh, answer to a question. And whenever someone says something may work, you always remember it may not work. 
I'm glad you remembered something. And that there are five <laughs> things always. If you have six, just condense it down to five. And if you have four, just subcategorize it so you always end up with five. Or make something up. It, or make something up. Well, PCMA is now part of Right On, Right On, Right On Prime. And that's part of a larger family of shows, a network of show, but not a family show, put out by MRAP, by Mel Herbert. Yeah, and it's great to see you and Steve still doing that version of the show. And I think you're doing about 10 studies a month, which is great. We used to do 30 every three months. Um, and so we actually, because we missed it so much, I, Henry Berry and I, who used to be part of that team, and John Hickner do a primary care update podcast now every two weeks. It's freely available, non-industry sponsored, no ads, kind of like you guys. And I uh, hope your primary care oriented listeners check it out, primary care update. Very cool. I'm going to check that out myself. I can definitely use a little more primary care. You have also worked for the United States Preventative Services Task Force, or the USPSTF, and currently write patient-oriented evidence that matters, or POEMS. Yeah, I was on the task force for four years, still consult with them, have really uh, thought, went in there, thought I knew something about cancer screening. Uh, after four years, realized how much I didn't know and how much I had to learn, and it was a really great experience. And we've been doing POEMS for over 20 years, we've written about 5,000. We do 250 studies a year that we critically appraise and summarize without any industry support. Uh, you can check them out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. And we have a Poem of the Week podcast that I do with my friend Mike Wilkes. Do you do it in iambic pentameter? <laughs> I have met doctors who, when I mentioned, yeah, we, we do the poems, they said, oh, I like poetry. I do like poetry. That <laughs> <laughs> memo hasn't gotten completely out yet. But we've been around for 20 years. It's in American Family Physician every, um, uh, every couple of weeks as well. And, and we really enjoy doing it and trying to identify the kind of studies that uh, have the potential to change practice and improve patient outcomes. Well, maybe I could challenge you to do a poem on one of the BMJ holiday edition papers in iambic pentameter. I'll look into that <laughs> after I get done reading the, the updated parachute uh, RCT. All right. Well, we asked the lead author to give their conclusions from the abstract. So could you give the audience the conclusions from your paper? Sure. Biomarkers can be useful for the diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia. The cutoff chosen will determine whether the test is most useful for ruling out pneumonia, for example, a CRP less than 10 or 20, or for ruling in pneumonia with a CRP greater than 50 or 100. CRP was the most accurate of the three studied biomarkers that are currently being used to assist in the diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia. We note that CRP is inexpensive and readily available in many settings and may be easily integrated into the clinical workflow for the diagnosis of CAP in appropriate patients. Thank you. Okay, Chris, let's run through the checklist for therapeutic systematic reviews. The first question is, the clinical question is sensible and answerable. Yes, it is. The search for the studies was detailed and exhaustive. It was. Yeah, they did a great job of searching the literature. The third question, the primary studies were of high methodological quality. They were. The methodological quality of primary studies were assessed for bias. Yes, they were. The assessment of the studies were reproducible? Yep. Do you think the outcomes were clinically relevant? I do. There was low heterogeneity for the estimate of sensitivity or specificity? No, this one, there were some wide confidence intervals depending on the biomarker cutoff in the study. There was low statistical heterogeneity for the primary outcomes? 
No, for this one, some studies were done in the eMERGE setting, while others were done in the office setting. And also some studies included all patients with respiratory infectious symptoms, while others included patients specifically referred for chest radiography. And the ninth and final question, the treatment effect was large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant. It was. All right, let's run through the key results. They screened 829 studies and found 14 that met inclusion and exclusion criteria, with a total of almost 6,600 patients. The study time period did range from 1986, oh, my favorite era, the 80s, up to 2016, with 12 studies being performed in Europe and one in each of the United States and Chile. Half of the studies were performed in the emergency department and the other half in primary care settings. CRP was studied in 13 of the 14 studies, procalcitonin in 7, and leukocytosis in 5. One study used the combination of CRP and procalcitonin. They did assess the studies for bias, and eight studies were felt to be at low risk of bias using the QADIS-2 tool, while six studies were felt to be at moderate risk of bias. None of the studies appeared to have been industry-funded. All right, Chris, what was the key result? The key result was that the diagnostic accuracy for community-acquired pneumonia was greatest with CRP. And all of these biomarkers have a threshold effect, meaning that the sensitivity increases as specificity decreases. As a result, summary estimates of sensitivity, specificity, and likelihood ratios are shown in a table for different cutoffs for each test. And we'll put that table in the show notes. How about the primary outcome, that diagnostic accuracy of CAP, or community-acquired pneumonia? Yeah, so a CRP cutoff of 10 milligrams per liter had the highest sensitivity at 90% and lowest negative likelihood ratio of 0.27. CRP is greater than 20, greater than 50, and greater than 100 had positive likelihood ratios of approximately 2, 3.7, and 5.8, respectively, with poor negative likelihood ratios. And then when you looked at the procalcitonin levels, if it was greater than 0.25 and procalcitonin greater than 0.5, had good positive likelihood ratios of about 5.4 and 8.3, respectively, and negative likelihood ratios were worse than for CRP. And if you looked at leukocytosis, defined as a white blood cell count greater than 9.5 to 10.5, they had modest accuracy, likelihood ratio positive likelihood ratio of about 3, and negative likelihood ratio of 0.5, with good homogeneity around this estimate. All right, that's enough of the results section. Let's get to the real meat. Oh, the nerdy section. And I've been dying to talk nerdy with Mark. Mark, we're going to ask you how many questions. How many? Come on. Four? Six? Uh, five. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah five. five. It almost makes me think of that Monty Python skit and the holy hand grenade. <laughs> <laughs> Thou shalt count to four, only if followed by five. Six is way off. Seven has gone too far, or something like that. Yes, there will be five. All right, here's the first one, and this is about external validity. Less than a third of the patients came from the ED setting, and this limits the application of these results to this clinical setting. The NICE guidelines recommend the use of CRP in the primary care setting, presumably as a point of care test to help decide whether or not to order a chest x-ray. Is this a rational use of resources in the ED setting where a chest x-ray could just be done as the initial test? 
So I'm going to argue that it is relevant, um, and I'm hoping, Ken, that you don't get a chest X-ray on every single person coming into your ER with a cough, right, or an acute respiratory infection. So for that patient where the likelihood based on your clinical assessment is low, a CRP can help you confirm that diagnosis. Uh, it's going to be generally low, and I think studies have shown you can also use that information to reassure the patient and avoid antibiotics. You know, I'm coming from the U.S. where we love our antibiotics and we're, you know, in an ED setting about 70% with acute cough, get an antibiotic in an urgent care setting, it's over 90%. And so if we can get that down something more reasonable by giving a patient some reassurance, and again, studies in Europe that have randomized trials of CRP versus no CRP making it available have shown that it does give us one more tool that's effective at decreasing antibiotic use. The test only takes five minutes, costs a few bucks, so it's really, uh, it's actually cheaper than uh, many courses of antibiotics. And by the way, in terms of the ED versus the primary care thing, being a total nerd, I went back to my stats package R and uh, stratified by ED versus primary care, the area under the receiver operating characteristic curve, the AUC, was 0.82 for the ED studies and 0.78 for the primary care studies for C-reactive protein. So essentially the same, if anything, maybe a, a bit better in the ED setting. I love that you're a nerd too and mentioned the AUC. To be clear though, I said could limit the application to the emergency department. And I agree, this study is relevant and I do not get a chest X-ray on every single patient that comes in and goes, <laughs> good, good. <laughs> but I also think that in Canada, we do not have the same pressure that you may be facing to get the chest x-ray and to give antibiotics. Chris, has that been your experience? I would say it has been. And we did a recent, we, we did do a podcast on this. I think it was uh, in July of last year with Larissa May on antibiotics for acute respiratory infections. Again, it was a US-based study. My experience is we give them less than this, although I'm not going to say that that we're so much better or something like that. It, there's definitely still a pressure for us to do this, especially from the patients. But at the same time, I feel that it's less than 90% of the time that I'm giving an antibiotic in the emergency department. So the next question I have for Mark is the point estimates and the 95% confidence intervals. So there have been some conventional cutoffs for likelihood ratios. None of the positive likelihood ratios were greater than 10 to confidently rule in pneumonia. And none of the negative likelihood ratios were less than 0.1 to confidently rule it out. What do you think of that? Well, I know that that's um, kind of a customary uh, thing. People talk about greater than 10, less than 0.1. And, and I've heard people say, well, if it's you know any less than 10 or greater than 0.1, it's useless. It's not value. I think that's arbitrary. I think we all know if we had eight fingers, you'd be using eight and one eighth for the cutoffs. Okay. This is a continuum. And for the same reason, I think using a single cutoff is unhelpful for CRP, in fact, or other tests. Um, you know, if the CRP is less than 10 and the patient looks otherwise like a routine acute bronchitis or whatever you want to call it, it helps rule out cap and keep us from giving them antibiotic, if it's greater than 50 or 100, it's pretty strong evidence for CAP, and you might consider empiric therapy depending on your setting. You know, where I work, we don't have, I'm in a safety net clinic, my patients are uninsured, it's difficult to get an x-ray. And so this is, can be helpful in settings where we don't have an, a radio, radiology department uh, right down the, the street, or right, right around the corner, or right down the hall, or right down somewhere. Well, I agree that uh, the conventional likelihood ratio of greater than 10 and less than point one is arbitrary. 
It's similar to the discussion that we have around p-values of less than 0.05 being used in a dichotomous way. As clinicians, we do not consider just one data point to make a decision. As the positive likelihood ratio goes up, so does my confidence to rule in a diagnosis. And as the negative likelihood ratio goes down, again, my confidence goes up to rule out a diagnosis. Yeah, and I'm just going to add that I think, again, it's not one piece of information in isolation. We're combining it with what we know about what's going on in the community. Is it flu season? Is it not? What does the patient look like? What are their signs and symptoms? It's not just that one piece of information, but it can provide some confirmation of our uh, clinical diagnosis, I think. Well, the other issue in nerdy point number two was that there were generally wide confidence intervals around the point estimates. Yeah, that's true. There were 14 studies, even with uh, almost 6,600 patients. Uh, at each individual cutoff, sometimes there were only maybe three studies that looked at CRP of uh, 10 as the cutoff, for example. So I think what would be ideal would be to try and go back, find some studies that use similar inclusion criteria and similar uh, diagnostic criteria, and see if we can get those authors to pool the data, the individual patient data, so then we can look at any, you know, a series of cutoffs and, you know, with the hypothesis that maybe less than 10 10 to 50 and greater than 50 might be a useful set of cutoffs. I think that would be needed. And if you do that, you're going to have much more precise estimates. All right. Our third nerdy point is about post hoc cutoffs. It is not clear in some of the studies used a post hoc cutoff. We have discussed this before in the SGEM of potentially overfitting the data. How do you think this could affect the results and the interpretation? Yeah, it's often hard to tell in studies, particularly older studies, where this wasn't recognized as as much of a limitation as we now see it to be. Um, uh, So it's kind of hard to tell. The Quadis 2, which we use to evaluate uh, study quality, has a category for threshold pre-specified. And we judge that to be yes for four studies, so they did pre-specify. No for three studies, it was pretty clear they didn't, especially when they're using cutoffs like 17 or 12. And uncertain for seven. So Uh, Again, I think a single threshold is less helpful. And um, again, if we can do some kind of an individual patient data meta-analysis, that might um, help us. And I think that would fit better into that paradigm of uh, ruling out, needing more information, and ruling in. The next question is about the imperfect gold standard bias, aka the copper standard bias or bronze standard bias. So the biomarkers were compared to chest x-ray in 13 of the 14 studies. We know that chest x-ray is less accurate in diagnosing community-acquired pneumonia than a CT scan. How do you think that could have impacted the results? Yeah, we looked into that, and I have a a companion paper that's going to be in academic emergency medicine soon that looks at signs and symptoms for diagnosing community-acquired pneumonia. And uh, as part of that, we found a a study comparing CT with chest x-ray. And in general, there's pretty good congruence. There was one study where they had 2,251 patients who got both chest X-ray and CT, 97% of the patients had pneumonia diagnosed on both studies. Only 3% had a pneumonia seen on CT that wasn't seen on chest X-ray. Now, I think the other point is, is it viral or is it bacterial pneumonia? And and that's where uh, fully acknowledge that radiographic pneumonia is not always bacterial pneumonia. At the same time, if we could limit our antibiotics to patients with radiographic pneumonia, that would take us from about 70% down to 5% in the U.S., so that would be a great thing. Okay. If we, if we talk about that Upchurch article a little bit, it, it did have some potential bias, like selection and spectrum bias, 
because it included patients who got a chest X-ray or CT scan within 48 hours before or after hospital admission, demonstrating signs of pneumonia. And not every patient got a CT scan. It was only one third of patients. It was up to the clinician to decide if a CT scan was obtained. In addition, it only included patients who had to have a pneumonia on this chest X-ray. So it didn't address all the patients with suspected pneumonia that had chest X-rays read as normal. These patients did not go on to get a CT scan. This makes me a bit skeptical of the 3% number and suspect that there would be a greater difference between chest X-ray and CT if it included all patients who were suspected of pneumonia and got a chest X-ray. Fair point. All right, let's move on to number five, because you already hinted at this. Uh, A positive chest X-ray does not mean a patient has a bacterial pneumonia. Prescribing antibiotics to patients with viral pneumonia is unlikely to have a patient-oriented outcome or a poo. Do you think this disease-oriented outcome, a do and not a poo, is a problem? Well, like I was saying, about 70% of patients with an acute cough in the ED and in the primary care setting get an antibiotic, about 90% in the urgent care setting in the U.S. And it could be, I think it's probably better in Canada. Uh, I'm Canadian originally, so I'd like to think it's better in my homeland. Uh, So my goal is to be able to use tools like CRP, simple heuristics like if someone has normal vitals in a normal lung exam, they don't have pneumonia, to be able to better rule out CAP. I'm less concerned about ruling it in. We can still use chest radiographs to do that. But where I think this can be helpful is in the rule out end of the equation. If only the 10% of patients coming to the ED who are diagnosed with radiographic pneumonia are the only ones who get an antibiotic, I think that would be a big win. I agree that would be a big win. And I also agree that we often use antibiotics too often. And I want to thank you and your team for publishing, you know, this data that could help us do better. We've covered effective strategies for reducing unnecessary antibiotic use on a previous SGEM hop. That was actually SGEM number 263. Please stop prescribing antibiotics for viral acute respiratory infections. There are also organizations like Choose Wisely and Right Care Alliance working towards the goal of limiting overprescribing of antibiotics. And as I said before, it does not seem to be as big a problem in Canada for a variety of reasons, but we could all do better with our antibiotic stewardship. All right, Chris, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Yeah, so we agree that biomarkers can be useful for diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia in the outpatient setting, but are a bit skeptical of their impact on the diagnosis of emergency department patients. And just to expand upon it a bit, I think if I had point-of-care CRP in the office setting, it would be something I would consider incorporating into my practice. But when i in the emergency department and there's a chest X-ray available right down the hall and CRP is not a point-of-care test, it, it has much more limited utility. All right, Chris, how about an SGM bottom line? Do not only rely on a biomarker in the eMERGE to rule in or rule out community-acquired pneumonia. All right, and can you resolve the case you presented? You order a chest X-ray, which is reported by the radiologist as a right lower lobe infiltrate consistent with early pneumonia. Clinical correlation required. You prescribe doxycycline and provide appropriate follow-up and discharge instructions. So Chris, how are you going to take this new study, this systematic review and meta-analysis on the diagnostic accuracy of various biomarkers in community-acquired pneumonia and apply it clinically in your practice setting? In my practice setting, which is the emergency department, 
I'm not going to routinely use these biomarkers to make the diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia. If I were a family physician, things might be a bit different. And what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? It looks like you have a pneumonia in the base of your right lung on the chest x-ray. Here's a prescription for an antibiotic. If it is a bacterial pneumonia, the medicine should work and help resolve your symptoms. If it is a viral pneumonia, the antibiotic is unlikely to help. Follow up with your family physician next week and return to the emergency department if you develop a rash, get increasing shortness of breath, or are worried. All right, it's time for the Keener Contest, and last week's winner was Dr. Kirby Black, an EM physician from Oneida, New York. They knew five possible reasons for why Michael Jackson wore a mask in public were for anonymity, for infectious risk mitigation, to hide displeasure with complexion and facial surgery, for anxiety and sense of personal breathing space, and for continuity. He started wearing a mask for the above reasons and liked how it was part of his style. Chris, what's the keener question this week? Since we are in the COVID times, I figure we should talk about some COVID chest x-rays. So what have been the chest x-ray and high-res CT findings in confirmed COVID-19 cases? Well, if you know the answer to this week's Keener question, then send an email to the sjam at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool, skeptical prize. Now it's your turn, SJammers. What do you think of this episode on biomarkers for community-acquired pneumonia? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SJamHop. And what questions do you have for Mark and his team? Ask them on the SJam blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. Also, don't forget that those of you who subscribe to AEM can head over to their homepage and get CME credits for this podcast and article. We'll put the process in the SGEM blog. Well, thanks, Chris, for doing another SGEM hot off the press. I know that everybody is just swamped with COVID-19 commitments. Thanks to you too, Ken. It's good to get COVID-19 off the mind for a second and just replace it with good old-fashioned community-acquired pneumonia. And thank you, Mark. I've been, I've been struggling for the last year, challenged for the last year to go, how can I get you on the SGEM? Because I absolutely loved working with you, learned a ton from you, hold you in high regard, sent you a few papers, and finally, finally got you on the SGEM. Well, I, I eventually lowered my standards enough to be, you know, part of this again and, and work with you, Ken. I'm a little disappointed you're not wearing the Batman costume. That that, that was kind of looking forward to that. But no, seriously, it was great fun. Enjoyed meeting uh, you, Chris, as well. And great to be back on a pod with you. Well, you're part of the uh, Georgia Bulldogs uh, community, and I see that you're wearing a Georgia shirt there. So the last part of the SGEM is always to read the SGEM tagline. I understand that there's a a, a vocalization that happens at some sporting events. So I was wondering, could you read the SGEM tagline, but begin it with the proper Georgia Bulldogs vocalization? Go dogs! Sick them! <laughs> Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Stay safe, everyone. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.